Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute, the Heat 2 Book Club special miniseries. I am your host, Blake Howard. Thank you so much 
for joining us again for part two. That's right. We're not doing this a page at a time. No, we are not lunatics. We're not even doing it quite a chapter at a time because there are lots of chapters in between parts. In fact, we're doing a part at a time. Last time we were on the show, we were covering everything to do with the prologue, which essentially is a summation of everything that happens in Heat. And then part one in Los Angeles in 1995. This time, I'm being joined by a brand new friend to One Heat Minute Productions, a person who I met on the Authorized Novelizations podcast and author of Spec Op Z, which is out right now. His details will be in the show notes. He is Gavin G. Smith, a true Heat acolyte. He's not only gone on one podcast, talked to me about Heat 2, he's coming back for a second helping. And unlike some of the other episodes, this is a one and done, a single person examination joining me. This is an epic episode. We cover filmic influences. We cover nods to heat. We cover the entire Michael Mann oeuvre. We cover the way that we feel about different characters now after this part. Thank you for listening. Enjoy part two. 1988. Chris Hales is in town only for 18 hours, but hours in Vegas are like dog years. He powers up to the entrance at Caesar's Palace in a dirty black convertible Corvette. Benny's overlay the weed, giving a smooth zoom to the light in the sky and the blood in his veins. He tosses the keys to his parking valet. He has a flight to Chicago in the morning, but today... He has a roll of cash to lay down. New clothes, a blue silk shirt, fresh haircut, wayfarers. He snaps them off when he rolls through the doors. Bulletproof. So, firstly, Gavin, thank you so much for coming back to 1988 with me. We had such a thrill talking on the Authorized Novelizations podcast about this book. It was the first time that we'd met. It was such a great thing to meet yet another you know, crew member for life, a kindred spirit when all things come to heat. And you and I were so deeply entrenched in the lore of this movie after so many years and all things Michael Mann that I was just thrilled that when we were coming around to do the Heat 2 book club that you told me, like, I really want to do, you know, I I couldn't, I had so many people that said they wanted to be a part of the show, but I remember distinctly that you were like, Blake, I want to talk about 1988. I want to talk about part two. And I was super excited to talk about 88 i was super excited to talk about chicago there's so much in the 88 segment of the book um especially in the early 88 stuff not so much the mexicali stuff that feels so much like hate the original and it feels like this is where you know it's it's so much attuned to that so i wanted to talk to you about you know all of your highlights the things i know that you've poured over you as an author probably know a little bit about more about the structure of how to play with these games in your own writing and things like that. But I I would love for you to dive in to tell me about why you were really drawn to this specific part of the book and what really sort of resonated with you. I mean, I think, uh, I think the particular draw of 1988 is that it is, it's, it's kind of the era when I first got to know Michael Mann 
because right. um, I, I think Miami Vice started in 1985 yep, I did. and ran until 1990. Uh, and this is the first time I had any awareness of it. And this is sort of like my mid-teenage uh, years. And, um, I, you know, that sort of period in your life, it, it, it's... Um, yeah, you, you, all your neural pathways are being formed and things like that. So you tend to tend to think of it more fondly, and you know, depending on how you look at it, you either get trapped in that time period, <laughs> or you can force yourself to have a little bit of distance to it. But I've been revisiting it in, in my own writing, and um, I think in many ways the 1980s was a dreadful time. Um, <laughs> yes. But, <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, where, where there was a collective denial of all yes. of the progress of the 1970s. And uh, uh, there's a great author, Susan Jeffords, who wrote a book called The Remasculinization of the United States of America um, that talks, you know, in depth about it. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's where they cast away, you know, you know, you've got like something like Blowout, which is 81, Raging Bull 80. That's where I've always seen is sort of the the death knell of new Hollywood as, as, uh, as, as, you know, from 1968 onwards or 1967 onwards, depending on where you sort of market. Um, and a year of like boundless fascination, uh, sorry, years of boundless fascination with the American cinema. Um, and Michael Mann is like a bit of a rare outlier of that time, kind of a new Hollywood spirit that kept making new Hollywood style films throughout his career. But yeah, it's um, it's so interesting to hear you say that and like the fondness because so many people that's their first introduction knowing the name Michael Mann was Miami Vice. Yes, and I I, I mean I appreciate the perspective when you look at um, films like Thief, when you look at um, films like um, Manhunter, um, that you can see the sort of the uh, the, the new Hollywood vibe within yes. them. Um, but you look at Miami Vice, and it is difficult to find a more singularly personified <laughs> kind of uh, piece of, piece of television of the time as Miami Vice. But there's a question of you know, uh, did Miami Vice? Sorry, did the '80s make Miami Vice, or was it the other way around? <laughs> and you know, you, you can see it as a sign of the time. But I mean, also the keep, the keep, oddly a very 1980s film in the way very. that. The, and Manhunter, Manhunter's kind of borderline. There's still very much the 1970s sensibility in the filmmaking, but um, just visually, visually it's like, to my mind, the, the best, the best stylistic representation of the uh, of the 80s in the same way that something like Scarface is because yes. uh, um, it's sort of like uh, I mean more Scarface than Manhunter it's kind of like peeling off the, the, the band-aid and having a look at the 1980s underneath it and you're like <laughs> okay this 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 all isn't neon and shoulder shoulder pads no but I mean uh, both, both that, great we, both great films to I think the strength of like a real true technician's film is like, can it be on mute? There was a great cafe in Sydney for a little while that would have, I don't know whether it was just this, but certainly the two or three times I went in, they would have the great Andrew Dominic film from 2007, uh, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward yeah. Robert Ford. And they'd have it playing on a TV screen on mute. And um, you'd sort of be sitting in there, sipping your cafe, you know, sipping your 
your cappuccino or your flat white or an espresso or something like that. And you're looking around this sort of very kind of trendy cafe, but for a xenophile, you'd sit there and be like, Oh, that's great. And I find that challenge with Manhunter a lot is like in the time that I've sort of been diving deep diving on Michael Mann projects, you know, you throw Manhunter on beautiful Blu-ray transfer. It looks fantastic, especially the special edition. Um, and sometimes I'll just try and have it on mute while I'm doing other things, you know, try and, the aspiration is maybe I'll have some cool like man inspiration visuals and I'll be able to get any work done. And it is absolutely impossible not to unmute and stop immediately <laughs> the work that you should be doing to just hear the soundtrack and to get into it. Cause you just see these images on your screen and you just are transfixed. So yeah, I, I, I love that you said it's not only the vice of it all and, and, and not only thief, cause there are so many great thief things in here. Um, yeah. But uh, it's it's definitely, you know, it's got those nuts and bolts of visiting familiar territory, but tackling it in a completely new way. Yes, and I think uh, and I think during that time period, you can see the um, the kind of effect that Dennis Farina and you'll forgive me, I've forgotten the name of the other Chicago cop that um, he Charlie he Adamson. Spoke. Charlie Adamson. I think. Uh, because he sp he speaks about them both in the uh, in the afterward, and you 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 can't uh, you find yourself wondering sometimes: is this the 1980s Chicago, or is this the late 60s and 1970s Chicago that was described to him by Dennis Farina and Charlie Adamson? Yeah, and yeah, I don't Neil think McCall. I don't think I don't think there's an answer that's right or wrong there. I think it's almost yeah. like it's a blend, and and I think you appreciate this and i think we've talked about it and we sort of maybe have touched on it but the bleed of decades you know that's why we talk you know why i talk about new hollywood and i enjoy talking about new hollywood the remnants of the 1970s ethos is is really in the political like the socio-political values of the people who are making art so it's not as clear-cut as like okay they made movies between 1970 and 1980 and that's it like on on december 31st yeah. 1979 it's over it's like well <laughs> not really because things are in production and things are being made and you know i think we're seeing it so writ large in just you know films that have been released in the last couple of years stuff that's been made during covid even though there's no one wearing masks and no one's deliberate like there's like seven people in like these huge movies that they spent $20 million on. And you're like, there's no people in this movie. It must've been made during COVID because there's just <laughs> yeah. no one there. Um, yeah. So you see, you'll see that. And I think that, you know, we're seeing that in a very sort of trivial way with COVID, but you know, I, I think it's very interesting and you can see the socio-political values of those artists, you know, bleeding through decades or if they're uh, really informed by it. This struck me this morning. It's got nothing to do with Michael Mann, so I do apologize. But the last Bond film, um, I, yeah. the, uh, spoiler, I, which I do apologize for people who are going to go and watch it. But there's that moment at the end where he's watching all the missiles come in. And I couldn't help but think he's going out the way that every Gen Xer thought that they were going to go out <laughs> in the 1980s. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, we can never escape the baggage and uh, you watch things like Stranger Days and you think, well, and that's kind of the thing about my interest in 1988 in this. And it's not just down to my nostalgia. There's other things in that that part of the book that I, I really like. For example, the way Vincent Hanna basically stages an assassination. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> We can't get we can't get away from our baggage, and we we sort of 
continually return um, to these eras, but sort of 1988, Chicago, 1988, Miami, and things like that. Were a, I don't know about you, but they were a very different place from where I was living in 1988. Yeah, Actually, like, I think I think you're probably very young, much younger than yeah, me. Yeah, I, I was a ba- I was a baby, really. But yeah. Australia, England, different places to the United yeah. States of the the late 80s. You know, like the 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 uk obviously is entangled being such a a pillar of europe and 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 europe opening up more and america was you know at this you know despite probably not outwardly that way they were like a dominant superpower the cold war was just breaking there was that more sort of international freedom coming on um and america was really flexing itself both politically um and you know monetarily you know capitalism was winning <laughs> very yes. much in the 80s yes. and yeah. so it's it's it was a really weird and strange time because mm. uh you know both i think our countries you know being a, a a part of the commonwealth australia was kind of like it was going through its own bumper period you know of pro- prosperity so to speak but it was different it was it, it was just about to start, you know, it, it had sort of started confronting things in the lead up to the sort of bicentennial of what we know as Australia, really taking the bicentennial from the time that British colonizers came here. But it started having those conversations. Then in 88, it started getting amnesia um, because that's, it felt like that was amnesia was the, the Kool-Aid du jour of, uh, of thinking of forgetting about all the problems and just focusing on this sort of triumphalist outlook, which I think is America. But what is great about the book and what is great about the texts that we were just talking about, whether it's Thief, whether it's um, Manhunter, is the seedy underbelly, Scarface, the seedy underbelly is still there. Like it's yeah. not, it, it never went away. In fact, it just it started dressing better is what it did. Yeah, and it started doing um, shitloads of cocaine. Yes, a lot. And in <laughs> yes, this, and in this yeah. cha- very chapter, subtext yeah, becomes yeah. text. That's the thing. The, the 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 cocaine was the the sort of fuel for it, yes. and it was almost the perfect drug for yeah. the uh, for the era. And it kind of makes sense yeah. that Hannah is, is doing the odd bump here and there just to help him get through the day particularly when you bear in mind that in later chapters um he's doing ritalin yeah <laughs> because he's getting old and wants to stay awake longer and remain <laughs> focused things like that and uh, you, you you sort of get into that drug alchemy of the things you did in your youth you've now got to counteract in your uh, in your uh, elder days and all of it is having a negative physiological effect on you yeah the toll you can't escape the toll that's what i like about it and also it gives you the context in this chapter in sort of one of these brief flashbacks and this beautiful confessional moment with hannah where he's you know talking to a victim who's in a comatose state where he's sort of just pouring his heart out like amphetamines were a way of life for vietnam like for vietnam veterans you know they were just being pumped with anything to stay awake to be able to fight this sort of completely and and world war ii vets yeah and they they took a bunch of amphetamines and they come back and then they've got to live a slower less sharp version of their lives and it's 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 that it's a big blind spot but it's like no the military knows how to keep people awake ungodly amount of time and sharp and intellectually 
capable to deal with high stress. They just pump them full of stuff. And, you know, that's, that's the whole story. It's like, I think, you know, we sort of might even laugh now at how wild things like platoon and apocalypse now are with the drug use, but it's just like, it's not just that they were like doing drugs that maybe were illicit. They were being prescribed stuff to be, to be fighters, to like, to mute any kind of reason that they might have or contemplation. So I think that's really great, but we start and I found this, I'm not sure how you felt. It's like we start in Las Vegas in 1988 and heat was being made. If anyone is unfamiliar during 1995 and there was a crossover period where, which is unfathomable from his perspective, but like Robert De Niro is making casino. Martin Scorsese's, stunning epic about the Las Vegas mob and, you know, also star Sharon, the great Sharon Stone and Joe Pesci. And so I feel like we come back to 1988, Las Vegas. We see Chris. We know that Chris likes to frequent it being an LA guy, but he's, he's lost money there at, at the Super Bowl and cleaned him out as he says in heat. And so coming back to Vegas and seeing this, this version of Chris is just, I, I I just adored it. I was like immediately like, oh, this is Casino. And, and there's literally like in, in the first opening paragraphs, it feels like camera instructions on how Chris interprets, you know, it's like a Martin Scorsese slow motion. It's like how Chris interprets the way that people are interacting with one another, the way that he sees these people, the, the spotting of Cinnamon, who we eventually learn is Charlene. I'm just like, oh, this is... This is just like a collage of man gazing at all of these great filmmakers that he admires and different kinds of films that he hasn't had a chance to make. And I was just like, as soon as we're in Vegas, I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. I, I love that where we are and, and what we're seeing here. fell in love right there. But in Vegas, for a girl like Ginger, love costs money. long tracking shot that uh, it basically establishes the environment that you're in and um, gives us the first glimpse of the uh, of the characters and it's interesting because um, more so the first time I read it than the second time um, it struck me how much it was a script part of that is crime writing it tends to be the most clipped and sparse and um, filmic of the of the of the genres. The kind of more scripted structure of the novel is where I was like, this is my my, my absolute most favorite parts. I'm like, the scenes that I can literally see in my head playing out, and I can't turn the pages fast enough. 
you know, they start, you know, obviously start in the very first sort of prologue and, and, and the first part of the book. But here I'm like, it maintains the momentum. And then later on we have to dive in and there's more contextualizing and there's more stuff that's on the page because we're trying to re reorient ourselves into new environments and those things. But I feel like in those middle sections, so much less is going to be said once this thing ever becomes the film that it intends to be, because it's mm. like, you don't have to say anything. You just have to be in an environment. You have to occupy the mm -hmm. space. You have to see how the characters interact. And it's like so much of that stuff feels like it'll just peel away. Like all of the homework has been done. Mm. If you want to see the homework, it's here. And now a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. see Chris he meets yeah. Charlene and right away we can start to see Chris's great people reading skills here and he's he he knows how to spot a loser um and I loved <laughs> him I loved him going this guy doesn't know what he's won and it just struck me as you know that moment which is probably one of the most powerful moments in heat is when Charlene eventually waves him off with the, the sort of blackjack signal mm. Which I don't it's, think I don't think I realized is a blackjack signal until I read it in the book. Yeah, yeah. it sort of uh, it sort of made sense afterwards. I didn't realize it, it in the whole of one heat minute until someone sent in fan mail and they're like, "Hey, actually, <laughs> actually, that's a blackjack symbol." And I was just yeah. like, 
I was blown away. But that thing of like being able to spot a loser, because we'll, we'll obviously come to that part specifically in the book. But here it's like when Charlene sees Chris, she sees a guy who's about to make a really bad gamble to try and yeah, get that, her. I mean, that, I mean that's, the, that's the thing about it. And that's, that's kind of the journey you go on with Chris. There's no self-awareness in that yes. ability to spot, to, to spot the loser. I mean, in the book, it talks about him making uh, meta gambles. Yes. When he's sort of, um, you know, choosing words or names that, that mean something to him to bet on a horse and stuff like that. And he, he, so it, it, it's all external with yes. him and none of it's internal and because we like the characters um in neil's crew we don't really talk about whether or not i mean uh Charito, i don't think there's any argument that he's a, a probably what they used to call a sociopath <laughs> yes but I, I but i mean you know chris is there as well definitely and, yeah, and and Neil is probably what we we like to call a psychopath. And you 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 hold up that black mirror, and it's kind of there for Hannah as well. Yes, and like you said, you you can see it all on the page, but you kind of think that man had this all in mind when he was making Heat twenty seven years ago. Yes, um, and so these were all thing all things they knew, and the, I. And in the 80s, there was a cliche of your action hero was a Vietnam veteran. Yes. And that's not really mentioned in Heat, except um, when uh, uh, Nate mentions that Hannah was a, a Marine a Marine yeah. veteran. Now, there are other, other clues around and whatnot, but um, you wonder to what extent they went to Vietnam probably well almost certainly had horrible activities but they were living in that heightened reality aided by drugs where they can do and behave as they please yeah and then as you say you come back to reality and you've got to slow down okay well if you can't slow down what are you going to do and your choices are kind of crime or law enforcement yes and then in law enforcement, Hannah then goes to put himself on the ragged, bloody edge as much as humanly possible, um, working for a reasonably infamous um, police unit in Chicago and then another reasonably infamous um, police unit in Los Angeles. Yeah, it's, um, you don't, I, I, it's, is it any wonder that, like, you know, sh what, for World War II veterans was called shell shock and then really popularized the, 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 the expressions of like post-traumatic stress. And we saw, you know, is it any wonder the, the like, I don't know, the, the rise of diagnosable mental illness from trauma um, mm. sort of spiked. And is it any wonder that people were lost? You know, it's one of the great topics that I love about the master Paul Thomas Anderson's film that is sort of, latently all about the history of Scientology is that people are coming back and America is having this delayed existential crisis that most certainly Europe had in the wake of World War One, particularly France, because yep. they were essentially yep. a battleground. They're having this delayed or deferred existential crisis that's very subterranean 
and you start to see the emergence of new religions and and you start to see the emergence of these things because people are trying to find meaning for their lives and in this vacancy this epic vacancy this lack of purpose it's there so you sort of see that with hannah he goes off he's living this and michael mann talks about people like living the elevated experiences of their lives he's like i don't like really focusing on characters who aren't living elevated experiences and so you know sometimes it's about a character who encounters someone who's living an elevated experience like collateral but it's like elevated experiences of their lives is what i'm into and what i'm interested in and what i'm fascinated by and so you see this is like of course vincent hannah comes back and he just starts learning he goes to law school and it's like being studious in the wake of that level of insanity I mean, must just be like an echo chamber for your head. Like I can't sit here. Uh, Yeah, I mean, when I'm when I'm studying, um, sometimes I can't stop the screaming in my own head, (laughs) and I I've had a pretty easy life. You know what I mean? (laughs) I I agree. Well, I recently did a master's, and I was like, oh my god, I have to get. (laughs) You know, this is like, can we get on with this? You know, can we just hurry up? And um, I, and all of this was compounded by things like um, generational debt yes. um, from from World War Two because come back shell shocked, the parents of uh, Macaulay and Hannah uh, weren't given the tools to deal with their experiences that they'd had in World War Two. Yeah, just get on uh, with this it. This is compound. Yeah. Uh, compounded by the when we go back to the 1980s we tend to again concentrate on the neon and shoulder pads and we think about the the nihilistic feeling that we all thought we were going to die and you know and from that you get youth movements like grunge in the 1990s and you know industrial music in the in the 1990s um so yeah i mean it's all there. I mean, I, I, guess, I guess I have a question for you, although I suspect you're supposed to be asking the questions in no, this you're, situation. You're allowed to flip do, the table. Do you feel man stuck in the past, that he's still working through the issues of the 70s and the 80s? What I feel very much about Heat too is that that it's it's doing something that he's only sort of just touched on in other films but he's had to sort of have this extensive sort of gaps you know like i think about ali i think that's like a real achievement because it is able to chart a period of history mm. where it's capturing a couple of sna- snapshots and the implied activity that happens or whether it's montage or whatever and you see this mm. sort of transition of time and so when i look back I don't so much see it as it being trapped in the 1970s. I just like to see exactly what we're talking about, which is actually the ripple effects of these things that have compounded impacts to how our society becomes today. And so I think that that's when he's talking about through criminality, like criminality gets to just be a cipher for technological advancement, social, you know, social change. And so for me, it's like looking at those different things and also looking at like, how technology changes us and technology changes the way we look at things. And so, yeah, I think, I think for me, there's probably a bunch of ideas that have individually thought, I'm going to go and examine this particular period of time, you know, with the, you know, when Vincent has his, um, when he has one of his more confessional moments with the little girl, 
he's mm. he's starting to talk about very specific moments in Vietnam. So you, you get a glimpse into him at that point where he, um, he he needs something. I'm not not sure whether he's seeking forgiveness or permission or or uh, something like that. But it's one of the few moments where he actually. Uh, he actually lets down his defences, and of course, he lets down his defences because the person that he is speaking to at that moment doesn't have much in the way of recourse, so it kind of can't come back to him. If you see what I mean, so again, yeah, like he's, Chris, he, he's, he's, he's only not talking forced to, to confront it. Yeah, he's talking yeah. to himself. Yeah, he's talk- when he's talking about when he's having this view of like Task Force X-ray and Lieutenant General Lahoo. Like man has had projects about Lahue that have yeah that have been developed and then gone. And so for me, I feel like this is a way to kind of go. It's almost a way to like analyze your own interests and try and throw them at the wall in a text. Like, what am I still obsessed about? How do they have connections? And whether that's successful or not, or whether it'll eventually turn out in the movie is is another question. But um, yeah, I think it's. I don't think it's stuck. I think it's, I think it's that great thing of like, man is a socio-political entity who still is looking back in the same way that we, you know, and I did this myself with uh, all the president's minutes podcast is like, you're looking back in 2020 as there's about to be an American election and you're hearing all this stuff that's happening in the United States and you're like, did anyone watch all the president's men or read all the president's men? Because this is like amnesia, right? It's like, it's watching this sort of cyclical things that he is fascinated with and just pouring into it. So I think it's less about being stuck, but it's just like the way that things get stuck, like the way that societies get stuck. It's that it's that cycle, isn't it? Yes. It's post-modernity. It's the, the, the death of history. And um, I don't, it's like he's aware of it. I'm not sure it would be fair to say he's kind of chronicling it, no. but it's very, very definitely there. And you say in terms of how we respond to technology, I always thought, um, particularly with heat and collateral, um, that that both those films is how we relate to the urban areas we find ourselves living in, which is a reasonably recent human invention, particularly (laughs) on the scale of something like um, uh, Los Angeles. Um, But I mean, that relationship between your urban environment, between technology, he's making really, really good science fiction without making science (laughs) fiction. Yes, in a way, yeah. Uh, um, But I've, I've, I've spoken to students of mine and uh, and of course they consume media very differently from my generation yes and they are talking when they talk about culture they are they're talking about it all happening all at once to them yes so i mean that and so uh, i've sort of looked in the work and they're referencing you know joy division tricky and things like that. Yeah. And you start going, how do you know about uh, know about that? But they have no real sense of anchoring it in history. Yes. In the way that 
I do because we consume music in a certain way and uh, it, the, the, there's an emotional memory point to it. And, you know, someone just as easily today could discover their Joy Division on, on Spotify and yeah. become a Joy Division head and you're like, how? how how do you deal with that overwhelming swarm of culture and then some part of it is like just ignorance it's just like no nah, i'm gonna stick in my corridor i'm gonna only focus on my genre i'm only gonna focus on this streaming service i'm only gonna watch what netflix spits out and recommends to me or this youtube channel and you know it's it's this weird reactionary experience of like having too much choice uh, that's my that's my biggest problem with the streamers is uh, you 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 know maybe you have three or four subscriptions or whatnot and you, you go well, I still can't find this film. We ju- we jump from Vegas. There's a great encounter, a really I don't want to say like erotic, you know, encounter between Chris and Charlene, and there's this immediate charged, really charged, immediately yeah. sparked fantastic and then we dive into chicago like we we get it's it's almost like a fever dream chris leaves and then we're in chicago and we're back with neil and his crew and then we get into this you know beautiful dueling um procedural things of things being set up this horrific home invasion we meet the antagonist of the book otis wardell um who i'm like i i feel like uh, that charlie day gif of the guy with the lines like trying to sketch out like what does this guy look like? Because there's not really, and I think perhaps it's intended a, a great physical description of who this guy is in this part of the book. Um, and we get Vincent Hanna and we see him bombing around. We see how he interacts and, you know, so many great Vincent Hanna lines in here. We see Neil and Chris and the crew um, together this time without, um, without uh, uh, obviously uh, Treo. Treo, we've got Danny, yeah. uh, we've got Molina, uh, which is a, a, another one of their drivers, but still the choral group is there. So we get into Chicago. We've got a Highline burglary with this great coast-to-coast crew. We've got a home invasion that kicks off in St. Hannah. And this is one of the things that I was going to talk to you about is that I love the interplay between this parallel timelines of these things happening all at once and the possibility you know, and that's what I think man has done great here. Like speculate, the thing we could only speculate on before was like, imagine if Vincent Hanna was in a town with Neil McCauley and Neil wasn't being got by Vincent. He wasn't on Mm. him. So Vincent is like on something else. And so Neil's heist goes down like a dream. There's no, there's no one there to disrupt. Yes. Well, I mean, that's the thing. He doesn't, he doesn't have a Wayne grow in the mix. Cause no. I mean, imagine heat without Wayne grow, you know, no, <laughs> nobody would have died in that would it even have gone to RHD. Um, but I mean, that's the thing with Wardell and Wayne grow, um, because these people who they are and what they are and reasonably vicious criminals, mm. your, uh, antagonist has to be all that much more horrible. William Blake's the great red dragon. And the woman clothed in the rays of the sun. Do you see? Yes. Mrs. Leeds, do you see? Yes. Mrs. Jacoby, do you see? Yes. The next family as they will look when I go to visit them. Do you see? Yes. <laughs> Mrs. Leeds, later, her husband beside her. Yes. Mrs. Jacoby, after her changing, the dragon rampant. 
Freddie Lowndes. Your photograph. No. No what? No. Not me, please. Are you mad? Yes. And so, so many times when I've spoken to folk about Otis Waddell, I, I've been diving into this because I really wanted to explore it. There's a great moment in the chapter where Hannah's talking to Casals. Again, so happy to see that Casals was in Chicago with Hannah. It was so, it's so cool because you see Neil's crew together for the most part, but it's one of those things that I it makes me reappreciate Casals so much in in Heat is because I've always wondered why he's the guy that Vincent will actually listen to like in that mm. crew like of um of of like we see later drucker of course and ted levine's bosco and schwartz we see his kind of core crew that in robbery or homicide but you know there's that one great scene where we see neil's face reflected in the in the infrared camera and then he looks at casals like do we take him and casals waves him off like no don't take them no, you know yeah. and and he actually listens to casals versus the other guys who are like i don't know and casals tells him so we see that they've had a long relationship but there's one moment that he says call kessler at the fee behavioral science at quantico and he gives him the number he says he help might be able to predict the behavior i was like kessler and I've read a couple of really great books about criminal investigation in a lot of my research for whether it's Zodiac and stuff like that. I was just like, oh, Kessler, that sounds familiar. I don't know if there is a guy named Kessler. There is, in fact, though, a man named Robert Kenneth Ressler, who was a Chicagoan and it was in the Chicago investigate, like the CID, the, 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 this division that Vincent is now in. And he was in the FBI from 1970, and he actually authored a famous book that was published in 1988, which I love, another like super <laughs> obsessed man detail called Sexual Homicide Patterns and Motives. And it, he's like one of those behavioral guys. Gonna, yeah. Like the, the uh, and, and when I was watching, I was like, oh my God, Wardell and some of the behaviors here especially how he sort of stalks families and looks at them and has these fast you know fascinating perverse scenarios go out in his head i was just like what else is much a wayne grow as he's um as he's a dollar hide as far as i'm concerned like he's got those those things about him getting into people's homes that home invasion bit and i was just like it's such an interesting wrinkle for me that like, you know, man, again, bringing in this behavioral science stuff that he'd learned, but it's like, I started thinking even more in that light as like, and especially his physical presence. I was like, Dullahide is nothing but this towering figure. And I kept reading this with Wardell. He seems to tower over his whole crew, big physical presence, dominant, smashes his victims. And I was just like, Wayne grows a, a snake he's a coyote he's he's the coyote in in collateral but um what else seems to have you know that same sort of wraith like ability to blend in disappear get out of there but he's also um he, he's also got that uh that 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 uh dollar hide vibes big time when you think about the way they profile him well the, i mean the, the three of them uh the three of them all have something in common, although it's least visible in Wangro, in that um, their pathology, their crimes are about making their fantasies real. Yes. Um, in Dollarhide's case, it's a sort of fantasy of apotheosis. Yes. Um, in Wardle's case, it's it's a revenge fantasy. 
yes um uh, connected to his childhood and uh in wayne grows fantasy it's less clear i mean yeah there's a, a, a yeah he's got Aryan tattoos and things like that but um the the serial killer element to him um Again, I wonder about uh, I, I wonder a little bit about it, but it's not clear what fantasy he's making real. But then, part of it feels like he's got to be a really, really bad guy because um, you know Neil Macaulay is a bad guy, and let's face facts, um, Charita is a piece of shit. So you know, <laughs> well, I mean, it, he really it, is. You know, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, he uses he uses a kid as a as a human shield. shield. I mean, once yeah. you use a once you use a cute, adorable girl as a human shield for yeah, anything he, except like her little brother. Like I hold my daughter up as a human shield to her brother if he's like throwing <laughs> a toy at me or something. You know, for unless it's like to stop a soft yeah. toy flying across the lounge room, uh, it's 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 pretty bad. But also in just literally two pages, it's page sixty eight and sixty seven. It then goes into, um, they're talking about the current uh, Charlie Bauman, who's the head of the criminal investigation division, uh, intelligence division, rather the CID in Chicago, where Charlie Adamson and and um, uh, and Dennis, Dennis Farina both worked. And he's talking about, you know, he's talking about Vincent using the fence to sort of see if he can find out if any of the if any yes. of the diamonds yep. that they're using. And they mention three names. The name is Joey the Clown Lombardo. Who actually was a Chicago outfit member? He was a burglar. He was a hitman. He was a bagman. For, um, he says for Milwaukee Phil Aldericio, who was a real consigliere for the Chicago outfit. And they mention one more name: a crew working for Leo Rugendorf. And if you don't know who that is, Leo Rugendorf was actually the character's name in the book *The Home Invaders*, which Michael Mann lifted basically nothing except for character character names from for mm. thief and leo rugendorf is robert prosky's character so for me uh, in two pages i was so swept up with like although sometimes you know you can get I, I would say like you can touch tolkien with like just how much backstory do you need to actually be telling the story like i don't need three pages on the hobbit's feet man like tell me what ha what the <laughs> hobbit does um so there's that extreme and sometimes i think that you know when when the work is pouring out on the page in some ways in this book it does it loses its frenetic pace that it has like really at the beginning and at the end of the uh, the book but here I was like, oh, no, this detail is so good because you're actually going, oh, well, in some ways, this is like, we've always imagined, like, did Frank, was Frank ever in the same prison with Oakler as Neil? Or like, you know, you start to have these fantasies of like, were these guys ever around each other? You know, what happened to Frank? What did, what had happened? But at least we know that in 1988, that, uh, that, that Leo had been around. Uh, there had been... Mm guy had been working for some of the chicago outfit for a really long time even though those people are now long dead um according to the the, the lore of the film and the book um that you know he this guy had been around working these working these powerhouse figures and you know and 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 informing on them for the police the force of my own body so what the fuck do i have to work for you for maybe you don't i'll lay it out you can be the judge you don't look you don't case you don't do nothing. We point you to a score. 
when we say it's there, it's there. They're all laid out scores. And they worked up. Alarm system diagrams, blueprints, sometimes a front door key, sometimes the scores are in on it. Everybody's ripping off the insurance company. Yeah, work costs, drops, tools. Whatever you need, you'd see me. I'd be your father. Money, guns, cars, I'd be your father from here on out. That's my end. You get a price. No negotiation about the price. We got expenses here you don't have, but you'll know the price up front. How big? Boxcar, nothing under six figures. I'll make you a millionaire in four months. I go to work for you, I'm pulling a lot of exposure. Our protection trades that off. Yeah, take a bust. Turn around, there's gonna be a lawyer, bondsman right there. You never spend a night in jail. Look, ice the lice. No furs, no coin collections, no stock certificates, no cottage, no treasury bonds, no nothing. Just diamonds or cash. Fine. No cowboy shit, no home Fine. invasions. I work with a partner. We take care of you. A partner is strictly your responsibility. He beefs on you, that's your problem. He beefs on us, that's your problem too. Well, you're inside people. That's my end, you don't have to know anything about that. So what do you say, Frank? I don't know. What do you mean, you don't know? I don't know. I don't believe in uh, lifetime subscriptions. Maybe you don't fit in with my retirement program. What are you gonna do, retire? Pick corn with the chickens, watch daytime TV for the rest of my life. What the hell's the difference? All right, all right. Two, three moves. You want to keep going? That's fine. Well, if you want to split, that's fine, too. Everybody's business-like. Everybody's an adult. So let me know, because we'd be terrific. Yeah, that's fine. I'll call you. I mean, I, I read that part in the book, and I, 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 I didn't, I didn't go, I didn't go too much further uh, past it. But I'm going, yeah, those are real people. <laughs> yeah, so that's yeah. what happens in a Michael Mann book. <laughs> so, like every yeah. person's name that comes up, I'm like, that's a real person, or is that like, yeah. is that a real person, or is that a? I wonder if that's significant. Of course, it's significant. He wouldn't put a name, uh, like a name, in without it being significant in some way. I I wonder if it's worth checking the 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 police um, uh, the police the captain of the CID as well because um, again you can hear Farina and Adamson yes. in those words when they're talking about how corrupt the um, the the sort of the 1980s Chicago Police Department um, was and I think 1988 was he not making Crime Story in um, Chicago at that time, which uh, is another thing I can't get hold of. Well, but that's not your problem. <laughs> it's another thing we can talk about offline. Yeah. 86 is, is crime story. It went for yeah. two seasons, so it went up to 88. 88. Um, so, yeah. So, he went up to 88 so it's that, around, around that time. So, that it's all those guys had left and hmm. had left the CID by the time that Vincent Hanna is meant to be there. But it's the Chicago he knew. Yes. Big time. Uh, yeah and um and you feel that and so uh funnily enough Tol tolkien's um an author that's very heavily connected to um, my phd that i probably should be studying a lot harder on um, <laughs> at, at, the, at the moment instead of rereading um heat two but um that, and, I, again, and not... we everyone who's listening appreciates <laughs> your sacrifice also not your not your problems but i mean the amount of work that tolkien did i mean i i appreciate that it was obsessive on uh, on his part and if you want to talk about sort of war trauma and things like that he's an oh, interesting author to look at but um 
to do that amount of prep, as long as you're sort of still in control and enjoying yourself, you know, that's fine. And to my mind, um, fictional worlds that have that degree of background to it often feel more real because they feel like worlds where this is just a story that's going on in a much wider world. And so they have world. more verisimilitude. Um, the problem that Tolkien has and to... I, I think what you're alluding to here, and I can certainly see it, is you don't have to show it all on the page. No. You need to know it. You need to know it. You need to know. And there, there are times in Heat 2 when you feel, okay, Michael, I appreciate you've done all this research. <laughs> okay. Good, good work. Some of it even quite dangerous research. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the you know the the story of him sort of being handed a, a gun by his police mate because um, he was going into a house on his own and um, but uh, so yeah I, I think I, I think that was a long winded way to say I, I agree with you and we found an <laughs> odd an odd parallel between Tolkien and Michael Mann which um, we didn't think it, we were going to get there but I, I yeah think sure, there's one but... there's one more big heat connection one of my favorite characters in any film is don breeden played by dennis haysbert and there's a moment where neil is driving past what's called the triangle diner which is a diner that he'd met chris earlier on in the in the in the in this part of the book and they've just been having a conversation about gamblers and like you know and, and chris says um we cannot secure our futures by playing the lotto and Neil sort of grins at him and says, yeah, you'd like that sort of the difference between the gambler versus Neil's enhanced preparation. But he looks over to the triangle diner and as they pass, he sees a short order cook, an ex con in there alone, uh, wiping down the counter. That's Neil in a different reality. And yeah, when I, he, he assesses the guy, doesn't he? He, he looks, goes, uh, yeah, he, he's looking around, I think from the original, time that he's in the diner sort of measuring up every person and in that particular moment um uh i was looking at it and i read that line again this time and i was and i remember it hitting me on the first reading but i read it again specifically to to sort of to map out how how it played out and i thought it made me reread a little bit the encounter with breeden which is
Bernie, kick him up. What is this? Where do you think you're going? There's nothing worse to, to Neil than that kind of like post-institutionalization life of having to live this really low frequency existence, this tough thing. And so seeing Breeden in some weird way and offering him a chance to become part of the crew and take a cut of their heist is him putting out an olive branch, but it's so backward. It's so like, you can see the math in his brain, but at the same time you are, it's really perverse. It's really bad. Like he, he can't for him, like the barbecues and ball games is bullshit, but this guy's trying to get his life back in order. And that to him is worse than the idea of prison. And I really, that, you know, amongst so many other things that I'm sure there's a few more that we should talk about um, before we wrap up. Um, I was really struck by that because it just, that's such an important part of the film for me as a text. The more and more I revisit it is that, that Breeden character and that thread of heat being, you know, interweaved into the overarching story by the end. You know, when you've seen heat a lot of times, you start doing themed watchings of heat. <laughs> yes. So I don't know how it, how it came, how it came to, to be about, um, uh, but I was watching heat last night and I was looking for times when Macaulay smiles. Yes. And um, what's interesting is you, he, he, you know, there's that wonderful smile at the end of the, the coffee shop scene yes. with Al Pacino. And it's, 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 yeah, it's not a big grin. It's kind of, it's kind of subdued. It's kind of ironic and it's acknowledging. And I am getting to your point. But when he meets Haysbert, um, and he goes, he goes back in the, uh, in the diner and speaks to him, there's what looks to be a genuine big smile on his face. He's yes. really pleased to see the guy. And then, the question I have that I can't answer is, is that a genuine smile or is that just another bit of functionality that he needs to behave this way to get what he wants to do the job? And I've always, I've <laughs> always thought it was, it's, I've always had mixed feelings about it, that yeah. entire encounter. Um, but here I would like to think, and I think Michael Mann, I think such is the complexity of Robert De Niro's performance, because this is what happens when you get a great actor. It's like, it actually can be both things. It can be a very functional. I'm going to smile. I'm going to try and get your attention. I'm going to do this. And also what is kind of riveting is that he genuinely feels that way. And I think that Neil genuinely feels a lot of ways, you know, whether it's, he genuinely feels love for Edie as backward as that is in his world that is he he just loves it like he's 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 in for this experience and yeah i think it's really fascinating i'm totally open to both readings but i i love that the the thing that always worries me is all throughout he he's working towards something and that something is to get away to go to new zealand go to fiji or what have you but you can't quite see that guy dropping frequency can you no no so is it always just going to be over revving the engine until um somebody good enough you know shoots him i think that what's so powerful about the exchanges in heat now is looking at it going 
it is impossible to imagine that this guy is actually going to quit. And I think we all feel that about Neil. And so it always feels like maybe there's something disingenuous about the way that he's dealing with Edie and maybe she's just a means or something. And you, the thing you feel about the thing you feel about it and why it feels hard and, and why it sort of feels sad and melancholic is that it feels like he would just, he could not live the existence that he thinks that he can. And these other guys in his life have been working with him for such a long time, but we are at that one last ride for him. So he's, he's, he's going against his code. He's choosing all these things that he, you know, are probably wildly stupid and not good uh, for him to do because it's all the things that he's set up to get him to this point where he is like a precision tool in, in, in heat too, in every part of the way that we see him. And he's so rigorous and so furious about these people who dare question him or start like nosing in on his business because he's just like, it's just those one that one person who then sees you can like this whole this whole jig is up, and we get that great sort of fight club scene that's a more protracted fight club scene of like robbing someone, taking their ID, telling them that you're going to kill them, and then seeing if they turn their life around. Um, but in, in but for Neil from that more psychopathic lens, he's like, no, I'm going to take your ID because if you dare even remember that I exist or I become a memorable something, um, that you know this is all going to be over so that you know they're very established at this time they've been working for a long time and i think that that's what's cool is that we, we come back a few years but these guys are high 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 line pros like they are doing their best stuff now i just want to make sure because i'm mindful that we've been speaking for nearly an hour and i'm i get the feeling gavin that you and i could do this for a very long time and, <laughs> and I, I am i am mindful that i do want you to get back to your your thesis um but oh, at some point i'm gonna have to do some work today work, yeah, <laughs> feel work as much as i am enjoying myself so so it's quite late there is it it's, oh, it's, a little, it's, it's a, 11 o'clock in the morning here and it's what 10 it's at, at night there 10 at night here but that yeah. you know look this is such as the life of a podcaster such as myself uh talking to people all over the world is that sometimes it's five o'clock in the morning sometimes it's 10 o'clock at night or whatever Whatever it takes, you know, this a, is a the podcaster of international repute. <laughs> well, <laughs> hopefully it's good international repute. Yeah. Um, what else in this part really, really did you drive with? I know we just touched on it, but it was like Vincent Hanna. This is a contentious part for a few people that I've spoken to in the book. Vincent Hanna and Casals taking a man to a ceiling, taking a man to a rooftop after he lied about his participation in Wardell's original home invasion and his brutal rape of this young girl who Vincent has been spending a large majority of the part of this book confessing to um holding vigil over um what what did you make of that moment and did it impact your perspective of Vincent Hanna did it make you think differently about him I'd love to hear your thoughts because I certainly have some I, I touched on this a little bit when we were talking about it in, in the in the authorized um, uh, uh, podcast, and I feel it sounded a little bit like I was sort of um, uh, litting the manifold problems of the American police during that period of history off the hook <laughs> in the 1990s, but. Um, in the 1990s, it felt like it was the beginning of really being able to hold um, authorities to 
uh, to account for their actions and there was a number of different reasons for that like you know communities having having enough activism but one of the more significant reasons for it was advances in technology and the ability to have handheld cameras and to catch abuses um uh, on tape and i feel very much both with that and the the no mucking around ambush we're here to kill this guy we're not arresting him of when they when they they try and get wardell um i think it's over the top um i don't have a, a problem with it as a bit of as a bit of fiction um uh, i can see a incarnation of hannah uh, behaving like that um uh, I don't have any real moral issue with it as existing in fiction, if you yeah. see what I mean. In the real, I think we can both say, yeah. I think yeah. we can both say that police abuses of power, we're not for it. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. But what we can say is, and this is where I think you and I came down on it, and it's good to articulate here. And we were talking about an authorized, but we're talking broadly across the book, so we had a little bit less time to focus on mm. the particulars of what led to it, but. I think we've spent like the better part of our conversation talking about specifically the Chicago police and the ecosystem of Chicago and the inherent corruption of the police as in, you know, the entanglements with the mob and things like that. And it doesn't, it doesn't strike me as counter to his character that Vincent Hanna would want to hold someone to account viciously, who is a murderer, who is a psychopath. We've seen him shoot down in the text a man holding a little girl as a human shield not waiting for like some kind of bargain or negotiation but just Mm -hmm. shooting him in the head um and having to land a precision rifle shot that definitely put a little girl at risk um um in some ways but he made a decision And so this for me is just an extension of that It's an extension of the city in his personality, because in LA, you know, he's, he's a much more sophisticated Vincent. He's had more time to think about who he is and how, and, and how he operates. And also, you know, the way that these sorts of things happen. And I just feel like in that moment, while it didn't, it didn't change the character for me. It didn't, it wasn't a holistic thing. It wasn't like, Oh my God, this is a betrayal of who Vincent Hanna is. I just felt like it was the most, the most stark reflection and probably ugly and truthful and ambivalent reflection of Chicago, because like man has had a level of idolatry. If you, if you like for people like, you know, Charlie Adamson and Dennis Farina. And I think that those guys, we would be stupid to think that Dennis Farina didn't see some shit on that job, Mm -hmm. nor Charlie Adamson or do it. Because, you know, like the way that Charlie Addison talks about really meeting the real Neil McCauley and having that conversation in the coffee shop that instigated this entire, I guess, man-criminal universe that we're now examining and unpacking and talking about thematic connections of, you know, he was worried about blowing a guy out of his socks, I believe is the turn of phrase that he Mm -hmm. used, at the front of a laundromat. Not 
he's a suspect. He's a guy. He's a bad guy. He has killed people, but there's no due process. There's no conversation. There's no like casing him. It's just like, there was a very real chance that at this time he would blow him out of his socks. And so for me, this untouchables moment felt as much as a conversation with the, you know, the way that Chicago thought that it had changed, but probably the ugly reality that it hadn't changed a bit since like the 1930s to now, you know, as far as the way that police would interact with bad criminals in that town and and how they sort of, um, the way they acted with them that I, I found it, it did, I didn't question it. I thought more of it as a reflection of Chicago and 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 the the time, um, and the way that Vincent thought he could act in that situation because of him getting a result. Because, as as the chapter has gone to great lengths telling us, his current police captain of the CID is a political animal. Like all he cares is bad guy off the street. If they're mm-hmm. dead, who cares? If the mm-hmm. crimes go down, that's what matters. The result matters, not not the actual thing. And even Neil says it and the whole chapter or the, sorry, the whole part of the book can really be summed up as like, you know, that great line. Cause we're currently in the depths of it in Miami vice is like Archangel de Jesus Montoya says a great line. He goes, I don't pay for a service. I pay for a result result. Yeah. And Neil McCauley says of almost an identical line, which is like, I don't pay for a service. I pay for a result and I pay for my anonymity. And I feel like that, like that's where Vincent gets all the rope in the world is, is that, scene so it didn't it wasn't a change for me and it's also like look if you're really worried about police abuses of power with a guy who's just like brutally raped and almost killed a 14 year old like we can have an argument for days about what i would do if you know my niece or my daughter if if i was ever face to face on a roof with a man that had done that to my daughter you can bet that motherfucker would be learning how to fly like that's just that's the, you know, I'm sorry. It's just the reality of the situation. It's like, it's, it's awful. It's brutal. And it's in so many films, we see bad people punished in ways that can't be realized in society or get punished in ways that happen in society and make us actually have a moment to pause. And I think that this is about getting Vincent Hannah is not just the white, the pearl handled gun holder and Laura Bider that maybe we like, you know, this book goes to great lengths to talk about. He's a flawed guy who's made bad mistakes. And, um, you know, he's sometimes he feels like he's justified in doing so, but that's such as the ambivalence of the character. And I, for me, it was like, again, just another question mark that made him more real, more dimensional. He's not perfect. Yeah. I mean, he, he, lo- he understandably loses his temper. And, um, uh, and also in that scene, I think you get the answer to one of your earlier questions as regards his relationship with uh, uh, Casals, because Casals just like, yep, okay. (laughs) Yeah, that that, that guy deserves to die. (laughs) I'll I'll look up to the door. Um, (laughs) You can go and do what you need to do. All right. Oh, he's outside, is he? Yeah. Gavin, thank you so much for doing this, man. It's been a real treat talking to you and getting to know you over these uh, hours that we've t- talked. And uh, yeah, I appreciate your time very much. Uh, def- stopping work, stopping thesis work to come and talk to me. <laughs> no, um, uh, thank you very much for ha- uh, having me on. I, I, I really, really love the 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 podcast. I think 
to take apart a film in that much detail is something that everybody can learn from and it's nice that it's enthusiastic about something rather than sort of taking it apart a huge thank you to the wonderful Gavin G. Smith, who you can find at GavinGSmith.com or you can find him on Twitter at, at Gavin G. Smith. He's also written the novelization of Jason Aaron and Mike Dionato's Original Sin. It is out now. He has more stuff going on. Check that out on his website. Gavin is an absolute treat, and it was a great time talking to him, both on Authorized Novelizations podcast and on the Heat Tube Book Club. Thank you all so much for listening. If you want to check out everything that we're doing, it's oneheatminute.com. If you want to get in touch, it's mail at oneheatminute.com. If you want to support us, go to patreon.com forward slash oneheatminute. We'll catch you on another episode of the Heat 2 Book Club just around the corner. Roxana Haddadi, Hannah Blackman, Brandon Hodges. Hold on to your hats. And it feels like such a 20th century movie. It feels like something David Lean would have done or tried to do uh, when he still had that kind of currency. And even then, he might not have succeeded. It's incredible because, like, if you if you don't have time to watch all five seasons of Lost, you can just watch Fearless. <laughs> not a week goes by that I don't think of the ending of Gallipoli. It's left a mark. A uh, year of living dangerously. Uh, you know, and then something like Last Wave, even that's so uh, deeply embedded with the land and the story of the land, the story of the place. You know, I don't know that I'd seen very many movies at that point in my life that had such a down ending and they had such a you know sort of strong sense of folklore uh, 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 attached to it as that. And something always so poetic and lyrical about Peter Weir's work. Gallipoli was the first movie that ever traumatized me, and I don't think I ever really recovered from it. <laughs> and I'm still upset that they played it in school. Like, I don't think it's actually possible to make an, they say it's not possible to make an anti-war movie, but I think Peter Weir pulled it off. Because yes. no one watches that movie then thinks, I want to go to war. Uh, Peter Weir is the greatest director that Australia has ever produced. Like, bar none, hands down. Like, no yeah. one else is even in the room. I think you have covered some really titanic filmmakers and some really titanic films so far, but I I truly think what makes Peter Weir special and what makes you doing this one special is we don't talk about Peter Weir that way, and we should. Peter Weir is one of those guys who I don't get why he isn't a bigger name, why he isn't more in that rarefied air, yes. because I think film for film, he's one of our very best filmmakers. He has brought his A-game repeatedly to many <laughs> properties there are films of his that i hold very dear fearless uh you know uh, the mosquito coast i will fight somebody if they talk bad about the mosquito coast it's man i love that movie but in general i just think he is a special filmmaker a smart lyrical um hallucinatory filmmaker he's a very dreamy filmmaker and i don't think he gets his due you know, Master and Commander is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, you know, it's easily one of the best movies of the last 20 years. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's a grand scale. There's a historical backdrop to it, but at the same time, there's such an intimacy in the relationships. Uh, which I think is not just a great film and one of the last great epics in the truest sense. 
um, I, I think is actually kind of a sliding doors change point moment in, in cinema history. I think 2003, when that comes along and it is a an old fashioned, you know, we don't make them like that anymore type film. I think if Master and Commander spawns a franchise at that point, the entire cinema landscape globally is completely different. That That's the movie that I wanted to see 10 of those, you know. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, I know they're big fans of Fast and Furious and everything. And God bless you. But Master and Commander <laughs> should have been. It's one of those things. Again, I I am not uh, I'm not a seafaring man, sir. <laughs> but there is a sense of authenticity. There's a sense of really watching a, a genuine dedication to recreating history unfold on a big screen in front of you that can't help but inspire just genuine admiration and awe. If you're gonna pick a film where he really brings every one of his skills to the table, it's Master and Commander. I think you picked the right one, man. Yeah, very excited to see what you you pull you pull out of this, Blake. That's right. Our next series is Peter Weir and Russell Crowe's Master and Commander. The series is called Podcaster and Commander. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., at Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.